You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. What's going on, Mark? Uh, what's going on? This is a first Friday Q&A. We actually got a ton of questions. Now, some of them are a little off base a little bit. That's okay. We'll do our best to answer it. The other thing is we just went through that tropical storm, Jake, and I, even during the last hurricane, Harvey, I don't remember that much rainfall in, in one day. We had poor, what's east of us? Uh, uh, Beaumont. Beaumont. And, Bo- yeah, I Beaumont heard Beaumont got, got up to four feet of rain. That's, yeah. in, that's just insane. We didn't get it that bad, but it flooded here. Yeah, we so we were leaving. We we office downtown now, and Colin had taken the parking ride from KDN, and I saw someone on Facebook, and it was said all metro buses shut down. And I asked Colin, I was like, "Hey, is that uh, is is parking ride part of the metro?" And he's like, "Oh yeah." And I was like, "Well, I'm leaving." He's like, "Ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry, it's not going to be that bad." And I was like, "Okay, well, I'm leaving now. If you want to go and you want to ride home, I'll take you home." We hop in the car, and it's just like the Walking Dead meets like day after tomorrow of just rain everywhere. You know, I got a brand new car. I was trying not to flood it. And we get to like, I had to take all these back roads. We get to like where TC Jester and I-10 is. And we're sitting there at a light, like waiting to turn right to get onto the on-ramp. We sit there for almost an hour without moving. And then we look up and we see people walking towards us. And somebody was coordinating, like pulling everybody off the on-ramp and getting everybody to back up. And then once we drove by, we saw that, yeah, as we were sitting there, I-10 filled up. And so all these cars flooded, all these people were stranded in their cars and so very glad that we didn't get stuck. And so we went over to a buddy's, hung out for a few hours and then made the trek to kind of find some other ways. Still went down a whole bunch of different areas where it was absolutely flooded. We couldn't couldn't go that way and had to turn around. We saw trucks that were completely underwater. We saw cars that were in the median. It was it's crazy. It's crazy unless you kind of like see it firsthand. And I'd never, I'd experienced Harvey from Tomball, but I'd never experienced it in town. So it was kind of a different, different experience. But luckily we finally got home after seven hours. Thank goodness. It is what a lot of people, our audience may not uh, realize is when Houston decides to flood, it, you literally can watch the water come up. Yeah. And if you can't get your car to high ground, it, you just you just lose the car. So um, thank God you and Colin are okay and, and y'all did the right thing. And for our Houston listeners, when the mayor says don't go to work, <laughs> don't go to work. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, the best thing to do is if it starts like just torrential downpour, is just wherever you're at, if you can stay there, just stay there. <laughs> That's yeah. And this is a good chance to bitch at Houston, uh, particularly the mayor. Why doesn't Houston have an app? This has been three years in a row that we've dealt with 500 year floods. Why don't we have an app that we can crowdsource water levels and road closures and vehicles that are stalled out and all of that? Like, there's so many like logistical issues that come along with flooding that. If we had an app that we could prepare ourselves in the future, maybe we'd be a little bit better off. Obviously, we can't just completely change the entire infrastructure of Houston. But Jake, the mayor said stay home. <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't know why you need an app when he says it's going to be so bad. Don't go to work. Stay home. Yeah. Well, the reality is everybody's still going to go to work. So speaking of reality, if, <laughs> that's a horrible segue. If you want to be real and help support the show, best thing to do is leave us a review. Like we got one here from Stuart Chinworth from US of A. I appreciate all the hard work y'all put into producing the podcast. It's given me great insight into the industry. I sell to as well as solid data points to discuss my upper mat. Oh, I think you meant to say I use it as well with solid data points to discuss my upper management when they ask about my sales territory. Thanks for making me sound smarter. That's our goal, Jake. Make everybody sound smarter, especially our audience. 
So like I said, if you want to leave us a review, uh, it's the number one way to help support this show and our other shows. And this was first Friday Q&A. And if audience, you could have heard me and Jake talking about stuff before we turn on the microphone. It was some serious Q&A going on. But now, <laughs> now we're going to roll over to your questions. Hit it, Jake. All right. First one's not really a question. We just had somebody write in. I'll kind of leave it anonymous for now. Uh, he goes, hey, guys, sorry to bug you. I just want to say thank you for putting me in contact with Brady Reese, uh, who works with Evercore. Brady had wrote in and said, hey, anybody who is looking to, to kind of work in the kind of the investment bank side of the industry, let me know. And so we put actually a lot of people in contact with them, probably like 15 or 20 that I can probably count. So he says, I just finished going through the interview process. I'm going to intern at their firm next summer. I also can't tell you how helpful the show has been in learning about the industry. I look forward to it each week. Thank you again for helping, uh, for taking the time to put it out. I really appreciate it. So that's fantastic. Glad to hear you guys were able to link up and some good things came out of that. Yeah. And Jake, if I remember right, Brady's a devil dog, right? I think so. I could be wrong. Yeah, so Brady, for giving you credit when you when you're not supposed to get, it, I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure you're a brother Marine. So you know, thanks for helping Brady with our audience and helping them find internships and jobs. I mean, that's what we have. We have a community around this podcast and, and the whole all the other podcasts. And it's just nice to see our audience members helping each other out. This is really cool. All right, first question is from Andre. He's a recent petroleum engineer in grad. He writes, new listener, and this is what I've been looking for, great insight and great wisdom. I'm a recent petroleum engineering grad from Penn State, and I wanted to know if you guys could give me some insight on what to expect in the job market. I minored in energy business and finance, and I find myself drawn between being in the business side of oil and gas versus the engineering side. Could you give me some advice on how to go forward? Ooh, Ooh that's a good one. Kind of depends. I guess my short answer, and then I'll let you take it, and then I'll come up with a longer answer. Kind of depends on what your ambitions are. Like what like, what do you want your day-to-day to be like? Yeah. The other thing is, I would also think about, you know, if, if, if you looked at yourself, Andre, five years now, where would you like to see yourself professionally? You know, you're, you're not a beginner anymore. It's not your first job. You're settled in. You're uh, growing your career. Do you see yourself working for a large organization? Do you see yourself working for a small organization? Do you see yourself working for yourself? That should help you figure that one out. But between the the business and engineering, I said, I think maybe instead of picking between the two, why don't you combine them? Jake, it's, you know, we make a joke about this all the time and, and please no hate mail from engineers, but you know, our industry is full of engineers that can't carry on a conversation. And if you're have an engineering background and real hands-on engineer experience, and you also have business skills, I think that's going to set you up for success. I, I mean, I think that sets you up for C-suite. You know, if you're working for a big, big company, you know, someday I think that's the the skill sets and experience they're going to want to run the, run the business. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think being kind of cross-functional is going to be an extremely just big asset for you. All right. All right. What's next? Next question is from Douglas, who's a student at West Virginia University College of Law. He writes, hey, guys, I'm not quite the most traditional listener of your podcast, but I've been listening for roughly the past eight to 10 months now, and I've really enjoyed your content. I'm a law student that is entering his third and final year of law school. Uh, I'm wanting to end up working within the energy field, and I have focused my studies accordingly. We'll be graduating with a specialization in energy and sustainable development. This past summer, I interned with the legal department of Cabot Oil and Gas. I'm having trouble finding opportunities to apply for legal jobs, though, and would like any advice you guys could give me. Thanks for your time. Who? Uh, so one of the first things is, uh, Douglas, is we actually have an oil and gas legal risk show. You may want to go listen to that for a little bit. The other thing is, I think it's, if you're looking for a job, because I'm not in this legal world, uh, Sarah, I'm sure could help uh, much better than Jake and I here. But I think I would actually look at some of the associations. I do know there's a Rocky Mountain a Mineral Law Foundation, and I do know there's the American Bar has a, a section of environmental and energy resources. I think if you got plugged in with the legal oil and gas or legal 
legal and energy organizations. I think that would narrow down your search and help you figure out, you know, which companies support those those organizations, which companies uh, donate money, which companies are active participants. And that would be a way for you to get in a room full of people that could hire you or, or at least have a need for what you're doing. I think that's where I would start. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think that's the best way to go. And and I'm not, not a legal expert, not a lawyer, but I, I think just kind of networking and finding out, you know, what what companies and what parts of the industry are really supporting this kind of thing. And then from there, you can kind of reverse engineer what potentially your career path could look like for the next five to 10 years. Yeah. The other thing to do is check out API. And I mean, the big API, the Washington lobby group, the one that sits all the regulations offshore, all that sort of stuff. They have a huge legal team out there. I mean, they could use some young blood, quite frankly. All right. Next is from Jordan, who's a commodities trades trader support support for I don't know something like that. He writes, "Hey Jake and Mark, big fan of the podcast. I've only been listening for one week, but I've already gone through and listened to all First Friday Q and A's available on my podcast app. That's a lot of First Friday Q and A's. Major. <laughs> uh, I work in a I work in the UK for a bank within their commodities trade support team, specializing in physical and financial crude and products. My career goal is to be working in the US slash Canada as an oil scheduler slash logistician okay i think that's how you say it preference towards ocean and rail having spoken with traders in my company they advised the best way is to try and transfer to a junior front office position and eventually get to a bank version of a scheduler role my question is what are some good midstream resources which will allow me to develop the skills and knowledge for a scheduler logistician role also if you have any advice for moving from a banking support role to midstream uh, that'd be great too thanks for all the info I'm going to go ahead and say that I don't know yeah. anything about this side of the business at all. So I'm going to go ahead and just <laughs> well, I, myself. I, I think the other part, Jake, is he's from the UK. And so I, I think he's using words that in American English don't mean the same thing. And and Jordan, if, if, I, if we butcher this, reach back out and we'll be happy to help you. But if I understand what you're looking to do, if you want to get into the commodity scheduling part of the business, that's a great part of business. Now, I'm going to tell you this much. It's a, it's a very high paying but very high stress job because you're literally making instant decisions that can cost a company millions or make them millions of dollars. But if, if that's where you want to go, I think before I would worry about getting in with a big midstream company because that's going to be kind of hard to do right out of school. I think I would pick up one of the smaller operators that also do their own scheduling, uh, things like Sunoco out, out of Canada. I would look at Kiwit uh, here in uh, in the U.S. and get on with somebody smaller than that. Now, in the U.S., uh, Jordan, you can hear this called a planner or a scheduler uh, position. But that's that's I think that's where I would start with that. There's a lot of growth here in the U.S. around midstream and especially around pipelines. And if you get your foot in the door with a smaller company and learn that position, then you could step up to a bigger company. That road's going to be kind of long because the companies that hire you and put you in that position spend a lot of time training. You spend a lot of time shadowing somebody, almost like an apprentice position, because they literally just can't cut you loose until you know everything because you can make one bad decision and, and kill the profit for the entire year. At the same time, you're vital to the company. So that, I think that's where I would start with that. Great question, Jordan. Next question is from uh, Anonymous. This is pretty long, so you guys just uh, bear with me. I want to make sure I read all this uh, and we get to the question part. Uh, you're right. Hey guys, uh, first of all, great work on the podcast. I'm a regular weekly listener who has been working in upstream for the last couple of years. I listened to last week's podcast and felt your response to the engineer who felt the industry isn't diverse, uh, was not reflective of the reality in the field as many of us see, and there are deeper issues that will keep it that way. I realized that West Texas has a more diverse workforce than most of the rest of the country. I am on my third rig contract in the last few years. On every rig, I have heard constant racist commentary and open racial epithets from nearly a third of the workforce, many directed right at our non-white coworkers. This extends up through 
company men from majors and the individuals who have 20 plus years of experience and the most authority are more likely than not to be the worst offenders. I've worked for large and small companies over the last few decades, and in my last role, managed eight states for a Fortune 500 company before coming into oil and gas. I'm not exaggerated in saying that any employee of color could walk off one of these rigs with an airtight lawsuit in hand for a hostile work environment. I even currently work with a mixed coworker passing as white due to a very aggressive racist screaming from the most senior person on our team, specifically towards his race. He probably wouldn't be on a rig much longer or won't be on a rig much longer, but the guy has three decades of experience, another loss of young, good employees that our industry desperately needs. Maybe your exposure has been far different, but I hear more comments. Uh, I've had to fire people or write them up for just comments towards other races and three months of oil and gas in the last two decades combined. It's a weekly occurrence. And that's in no way an exaggeration. I've handled that discipline before in other industries that were largely white and there's simply no comparison. It's a top current driver for me to want to leave the industry. And the main reason I can't go in good conscience because I uh, suggest anyone else look at working on a rig or probably oil and gas as a whole. I've worked with hundreds of great guys, but a third of these teams are simply not employable at any other company following basic employment discrimination standards, and it shouldn't be in ours either. Yep. So read the next one too. So I think you and I need to answer both of these at the same time. Okay. Another person writing in, their name is Monica. She writes, I'm a, a fifth generation oil and gas producer. I do not agree with you on the diversity in the oil and gas industry on your August 28th show. When I started in the oil and gas business full-time, I was the only woman under 40 in the room. Most of the time, I was the only woman in the room, period. While I agree with you, the industry has become more diverse. I don't believe it has come far enough. I attend NAPE every year in Houston and have for the last 15 plus years. In fact, the first show I went to as a very young woman Booth babes were still very present. They still are today. Only the last three years have I been able to recognize a variety of race and gender. But I think it's important to note that while diversity has grown in the last hundred or last ten years, the higher up you go in the company structure, the less diverse. I hope that as an industry current white male dominance ages out of the industry, we will begin to see an increase in diversity of the C level within the industry. So my thoughts here, people, I know that we have this sort of discrimination goes on in our industry and it goes on in other industries, but I know it's gotten so much better. Uh, these two people obviously have a different experience than I. I tend not to be in the field. I tend to interface with senior management with mid-sized large oil and gas companies, and I've just seen the change. I do know that these sort of things happen, and here's two examples of two people that has had some stuff happen to them that, that really I wish it didn't happen. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the women in our industry. One of the things I think is really interesting is here in the U.S., about 60% of our new hires in the last three years are female. If that trend continues eventually men will be the the minor portion of our workforce which i which i think is great you know we had one of our sponsors win some contracts a couple years ago because 38% of the the company's uh, field staff were female and they had to have fr clothing's cut for women because you can't put a woman in a male's fr clothing and have it protect them and so i, I mean it just that fact right there that now the fr clothing manufacturers are making uh, frs or flame resistant clothing for women just show you how much stuff has changed so you know from my point of view, and I've been in this industry 20 years, our discrimination has gotten so much better. I know it still happens, but I know it's gotten so much better. But I think we're headed right in the right direction. I mean, when I walk into an office of, of an Anadarko or of a Halliburton or whatever, I don't see male or female or black and white or nationalized or non-national. I just see all field workers, right, or people that work in the office. And I think most of my peers feel the same way. What are your thoughts around this, Jake? 
I think we've, we've already addressed our kind of own takes on diversity. And trust me, I've heard a lot of these stories, particularly about the field. My field exposure is rather limited to just our operations, and I haven't heard anything personally. Colin kind of grew up in the field, you know, from being roughneck all the way up. I've heard a lot of stories from him. I would say that there's definitely, you know, you're not going to change necessarily racist people, but in the workplace, I think it's completely just uncalled for and it shouldn't be allowed in any capacity. So I think that's on upper management to take care of that. You know, I think there are a lot of people who are unemployable for that reason, and that's kind of their own fault. So you want to be racist? Hey, it's the land of the free, home of the brave. You can go and do that. Okay. Just don't do it in the workplace. So that's my take on that part. I think, I think it's still a pretty diverse industry. Here's the one thing I want to say about diversity, just because it, it, it's always a big topic, not just in the oil and gas industry, but everywhere. We're seeing, hey, we need to have the boards of all these companies be more and more diverse. And I'm not against diversity, but I think that there's no point in having diversity for diversity's sake, if that makes sense. Yep, agree. So we are building up with, with one of our projects right now. We just hired a whole bunch of people, and it's an extremely diverse team. It's not a diverse team because we set out to be diverse. We went out and se- we're seeking the best people for the job, and it just so happened to be them. Okay. So people from South Korea, I've got a guy from Indonesia, I've got a guy from the Philippines, you know, it's, we have a female that we're looking at bringing on board and it's not just the fact that, oh, we needed to add a female team. It's just because she was the best for the job, you know? And I think the same thing, I, I, what I hate to see is when the best person for the job loses out on a position for the sake of diversity. It's the same thing as uh, what, what's it called with the schools? I can't remember the, the term for it. Yeah. Affirmative action. Yeah. So the, the more yeah. qualified people lose out on positions just because you have to be inclusive for the sake of diversity. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. So I don't want people on my team to meet some type of diversity goal. I want the best people. If you look at what we're doing here at OGG, and I think we're about 50% female, that wasn't on purpose. That just happened that way. So like I said, I think as we go through time, this will continue to fix itself. And, you know, for both these people's had bad experiences. We, we know it. You've, we know you're telling the truth. It just, you know, I see it from my angle as getting better and better every year. And I think that trend was just going to continue. Yeah, the industry still has a long ways to go, but it is getting better. I'm, I'm sure if you fast forward 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, it was much worse. That's no excuse for anything today. So let's just all do better. Next question is from Billy, who's company man. He writes in, a doghouse <laughs> is not a crew quarters. It is where the rig is run, whether it be a cyber rig or an older rig with a manual break. Not sure what, it, not yeah, sure where where he's refer- what he's referencing. I do. So the when you miss coming to us with Denver, we had a contest in the audience. And so we literally asked, you know, our, our industry is full of funny acronyms. So we literally asked people in the audience, what's a doghouse? What's a granny rag? What's nipple up? And we had people answer. And I think that the guy answered that it was crew quarters, but because everybody was clapping so loud, I couldn't hear his answer. So we just said, yeah, it wasn't until later that the audio was edited that I heard that he answered it wrong, but I didn't want to edit it out. So good job for catching that, Billy. (laughs) Next question is from Adriana, who's an attorney. Uh, She writes, hey guys, thanks for putting out fantastic podcast content every week. I started listening to your podcast a couple months ago as a better way to understand the industry and be better positioned to market myself as an oil and gas attorney. To provide some context to my situation, I'm a relatively new attorney, and I began working in the oil and gas field last fall, primarily doing title examination for a boutique firm in Houston. I have found the need to attract potential clients for my firm and or search for other employment opportunities in the industry. My limited experience in the industry is my greatest weakness. I constantly hear about the need for young talent as the older generation are ready to retire. However, I do not see this trend in the legal field. 
what is your input on the market conditions for legal professionals in oil and gas? Uh, and then, so that's the main question. Let me go ahead and finish the rest and then we'll answer that. What suggestions can you give me to assist in finding a legal position and attracting potential clients considering my limited experience in the industry? I realize networking is pivotal in order to be successful in this industry. I am slowly growing my networking circles. I'm constantly asking industry professionals for advice and insights on their personal journeys to current success. I'm very inquisitive and driven to learn as much as possible in order to remain in oil and gas. What else can I do in order to get this much sought after experience when few are willing to provide it. I appreciate any feedback you can give. P.S. Jake, to make your life easier when trying to say or remember the name of Mexican president Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Hopefully I didn't butcher that. Just refer to him as AMLO as we call him. I won't try to write the pronunciations. I'm afraid of butchering it completely. Okay, Mark, where do we start here? So it's funny here. If we got two legal questions, I guess we're getting more <laughs> exposure to the legal students out there. So a couple things. So first thing, once again, I'd go back and listen to Oil and Gas Legal Risk, Sarah's show. She's somebody you could reach out to, but I think you're doing the right thing by networking. Now, if you want to stay down that title route, the thing I would do instead of looking at law offices, I'd look at all the landman companies out there. And then there's several uh, technology companies that are helping the landman do faster, more efficient, more accurate work. I would look at them as well because they go, they will need an attorney as they develop their software, as they develop their their technology solutions. So I, th- I think that's where I would start. Once you get you know five or six years running title as with a landman company, then I think you could venture out and do more. But that'd probably be the quickest way for you to get in, get a job. And I know they 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 can't hire enough people quick enough. So that that's actually where I would start. And thank you for helping us with our our Spanish. We're Jake and I both are horrible at it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not great at Spanish at all. I agree with Mark. That's probably the best advice I could give at this moment. Obviously, not being in the legal field at all, it's kind of hard for me to kind of relate and and give any advice other than just getting out there, networking, providing as much value as possible, showing your face at a lot of these events, and just, uh, yeah, make yourself known. And, you know, there's actually several conferences around land work. So at NAEP. So, you know, if it's another place you could go check out where there's be a bunch of companies that could use your your, skill set. Yep, absolutely. All right. Uh, next is somebody named Play Trader. That's probably the uh, handle they use. Uh, student and teaching assistant. Hey, Jake, do you recognize the, uh, the school? I do recognize the school. Yep. Student and teaching assistant at Tulane's AB Freeman School of Business. Mark and I spoke there in 16 or 17. I think it was 17. Yeah, it w- we had a great time there. It was a, it was a fun time. I actually talked to one of their graduates uh, two days ago on the phone. So is there a question, Jake? I think there's a question. Let's see. <laughs> do you think... IMO 2020 will put a premium on WTI due to its sweetness. Yeah. So IMO 2020 is, and I can't remember what IMO stands for. I think it's uh, something maritime organization, but basically it's a rule where they're going to they're change the reduced amount of sulfur in the fuels that uh, vessels use in our world's oceans. Now, when you think of internal combustion engines, when you think of things like uh, cars in here in Europe, they burn so unbelievably clean. It's almost nothing comes out of the exhaust pipe. It's a totally different story when you're talking about a, a, a 600, I mean, a 300 foot supply vessel. They're burning bunker sear, creosote, which is just nasty, gross. So many emissions, uh, so much pollution because there's no catalytic converters on an ocean like Delaney, I'm telling you. Uh, there's no lean burn technology. So this is a way for the world to agree upon a way to reduce emissions. Now, here's an interesting thing. Will force refiners to optimize their process around WTI? And the reason that he's asking that question is WTI is a more optimal blend of crude to turn into the fuels we use offshore. 
The interesting thing with that, though, is most of our refiners are set up to process their heavier crudes than WTI. Now, there's some people out there, Valero is a great example, who really love that WTI crude. So do I think it's going to force them to uh, optimize around WTI? No. So there's going to be a backlog of the existing fuels. The other thing you have to remember is here in Europe, we're going to stick to this IMO 2020 ruling. But other countries, they're not, right? And other countries uh, have a lot of the world's shipping. I mean, think of China. So until they get on board, I, I really don't think you can see uh, much changes in the, the way the refineries are blending uh, to produce the fuels we need offshore. Now, once again, I don't have a crystal ball, but that would be my take on that. 100% agree. Haven't followed this topic too much, so I'm going to go ahead and roll with Mark's answer. <laughs> uh <laughs> On to the next question, uh, anonymous question. They write, the Netherlands is going to end gas production completely in 2022. My sources in the ministry tell me they worked it out. My gut feeling says it's not going to happen. No offense, but a compensation for Shell and ExxonMobil of 90 million euros. I'm guessing that's euros. Next year, lost profits is 360 million to 380 million. So my question is, do you think the Netherlands is going to come off of oil and gas or going to completely eliminate gas? Let's just say that. Yeah, so the Netherlands are one of the few countries that actually probably could do it, right? They have the perfect mix of geothermal and hydro energy, so they could. Do I think they will? Eh, the politics say they are. The people want it. It's going to drive the cost of living up for everybody. So I, I, I would say there's probably about a 70% chance they're going to – I would say there's a 100% chance they're going to do it. I'm going to say there's probably a 70% chance they actually can be successful at it. Okay. And then his second question is, where will the Netherlands get its gas for heating from? Yeah. So what's going to happen is it, the, the entire country is going to have to switch from natural gas to electricity to heat their homes and their offices and their, their workplaces. And you talk about expensive when you go from natural gas to electricity for heat, especially. It's, it's much more efficient from a cost point of view to use natural gas to generate heat than it is to use electricity. But you know what, Jake? We're seeing this happen in the U.S. There's municipalities. There's several uh, cities in California that have already passed laws where new construction cannot have uh, natural gas supply to them. And all it's going to do is increase the cost. Uh, I mean, it's just increase the cost think to everybody. Cost we saw this happen in Germany a couple of years ago. Where so think about the the cost of the grid and how taxing it's going to be on our already integrated grid. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be expensive. Yeah, and so you know what I think is going to happen with a lot of this. I think from a political point of view, people are going to push politicians to go there. And I know this about people: the moment it starts hurting. They, they want the pain to go away. So if the moment they start paying more for their electricity, they're paying for their house note, I'm pretty sure they want to go back to natural gas. Yeah, absolutely. Next question is from uh, Caesar. <laughs> he says, do you know of any oil and gas exploration activities happening in the greater and lesser, is it Antilles region? Okay. Antilles, that's right. Of the Caribbean slash Atlantic. If not, what is holding back the exploration and development of this region of the world? So this is really cool. So the the greater and lesser Antilles is actually really close to Venezuela. And you know, Venezuela has that huge supply of heavy crude. And everybody said, well, there's nothing in the Caribbean. Guess who figured it out, Jake? It's the best oil and gas, the best hydrocarbon finder in the world, ExxonMobil. So ExxonMobil found some major reservoirs back in 15 or 16. And then I think last month they uh, discovered some more. I think it's around five to 700 million barrels or equivalent out there. And so... The, the reserves are there. Now, what's holding back the exploration development is regional world. I'm going to tell you the truth. 
a big part is corruption, right? So ExxonMobil will probably come in and probably do a couple of joint ventures uh, to help mitigate their risk when they actually go in production. But they need to know for sure that things aren't happening to them like what happened in Venezuela, where they stuck a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of engineering talent, and they got kicked out of the country, right? And trust me, Exxon still remembers they got kicked out of Venezuela. They will get they will get their stuff back at some point in the future. The other thing is is infrastructure. In order to do this right, they, you need the infrastructure in that part of the world, and it, and it's being built. So deep water ports, the ability to build pipelines, the ability to house and feed the workers that are going to come in. So what's holding back is the uh, ExxonMobil making sure that the corruption doesn't hurt their future efforts. And they're going to they're mitigate that by doing some joint ventures, I think. It's not like ExxonMobil calls me anymore. They used to. Not really. <laughs> well, sometimes. <laughs> and then the infrastructure. So I, I got a feeling, Caesar, you want an oil and gas job or you're ready for this to happen now. And it just doesn't happen. So they've made the discoveries. It may be 10 years. I know you don't want to hear that before they actually uh, start developing those fields because it's just how it's done. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question is from uh, Douglas. Uh, you're right, say Mark and Jake, most industry folks uh, cringe when anyone brings up the idea of Warren's fracking ban, but isn't fracking what turned the industry upside down by dramatically increasing a supply? Do you think it would be a net negative for U.S. oil and gas jobs if fracking was banned and or severely curtailed in the U.S.? Even though it would cause natural gas and oil prices to skyrocket overnight, and those prices would drive massive investment into conventional oil and gas. That's an interesting interesting question. So this is dependent on our politicians to understand a bit of our industry, which is doesn't happen on, on either side. Let's, let's be fair. One side hates us. One side has no idea what we're doing, right? If you actually banned fracking, would that spill over into conventional reservoirs? I think politically it would. But if it didn't, because you're starting to see, I mean, you, you've been seeing this same thing happen now with petrochemicals. You see our politicians all caught up and sticking their fingers in our upstream part of the business. And then the last five years in the midstream part of our business, they don't touch downstream and they don't see it. So they haven't messed it up. That's why petrochemicals is booming. If they would let conventional uh, resources be utilized and ban fracking, there's a good point here. Maybe we would double down on conventional reservoirs. We have a lot of it. What would really happen if we banned fracking is the cost of everything would go through the roof in the U.S. and we would be dependent on foreign oil like we've never had been before. And this, from a from a military point of view, I, I don't want to see the U.S. dependent on Russia and, and OPEC at all. From a national pride point of view, how insane would it be if our politicians limited this very natural, very abundant fuel source that we've been blessed with in this country that's everywhere? So hopefully it doesn't go there. The other thing is there would have to be some changes in our in our constitution Maybe not change our constitution, but there have to be changes in our federal laws for, the, for anybody to even be able to ban fracking because you'd have basically have to nationalize the U.S. oil and gas industry, and that's not going to happen. And if it did, geez, all those jobs would, go out, would, would just disappear. And I don't mean like 10 or 20 percent. I mean, I mean, we're probably talking over 70 percent of the of jobs in the office, in the field, in the pipelines, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. So I don't think it's going to go there, but Jake – I don't know about you, but politically lately in the last couple of years, the people are starting to believe and, and support the most insane stuff. So, you know, fingers crossed that common sense prevails. Yeah. You, you never know. Never know what's going to happen politically anymore. I mean, if you would have told us 10 years ago that Donald Trump would have been president of the United States, I think all of us <laughs> would have laughed at you. So who knows? I don't really uh, pay too much attention to politics a whole lot anymore. But I do know for sure that fracking is not going anywhere. There's definitely not going to be a ban. Yeah, Warren needs to uh, get some new advisors or maybe some new positions on uh, <laughs> on the way that she wants to run a campaign. Because for one, she's not even going to get it nominated with uh, a position like that. 
Yeah, you know, this isn't in our list of news articles, but, you know, we just had the recent attack in the refineries and the uh, offloading terminals in Saudi Arabia. And Jake, I saw this morning, we're moving troops over there. So this shit's getting ready to get real. Yeah. Kind of just uh, stand by, see what happens. But all right, guys. Well, this was First Friday Q&A. You wrote in questions. We wrote in answers. So if you have a question for us, feel free to write in, click in the ask a question button in the show notes, or just go to the website. You can check it out there as well. And we'll be glad to answer that. Mark, what else we got? Besides being glad to answer the questions, we're also doing this really cool giveaway. And Jake, I had three people in the last probably two weeks send me pictures of them in their shirts, which I just think is cool. So if you'd like to win one of these cool shirts, it has a, a pump jack on the front. It's it's actually an uh, antique patent on the pump jack print on the front. It's our logo on one sleeve, IBM's logo on the other sleeve, and they're uniquely serial numbered. So we give away one a week. We spent some money on these things. They're cut for both men and women. Go to the show notes, click on the link, enter. One thing that a lot of people have asked me is that you can enter every week. If you don't win, you can enter every week. That's the rule. So just keep entering, folks, and you'll, you'll have a better chance of winning this. And then we're at the uh, weekly rig count, which is no longer done by Drilling Info. I can't even pronounce their new name, but I don't like it. Inverus. Inverus. Do we know what the rig count is by Inverus? It sounds terrible. Uh, it is 908. Okay, 908. It's going to go down, and it's going to be a good thing. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, then we have our street team. Finally, Jake, I've been saying it for I don't know how long. Finally, we're going to start doing some live streaming for our street team members. Answer some questions. Get to know those people. We're taking uh, some of our street team members have volunteered to be what we call happy hour heroes as we build these happy hours across the U.S. and actually across the world. So uh, go join the street teams, a, a Facebook group. We ask you for an hour's worth of work a week, but honestly, we haven't been even asking you for that lately. But at some point in the, in the future, we will. And then if you want to know about all the oil and gas events, we have a monthly newsletter. That link's in the show note, too. So we put it in your inbox once a month for free. And then if you want Jake and I to come speak at your marketing or sales kickoff, we're getting toward the end of the year. And I know marketing sales teams are planning the kickoff for the uh, 2020. If you want us, we'd want us to bring a live podcast or both, reach out to us. We'd be happy to share the details. And while you're online, go ahead and go to our LinkedIn group. Jake, you know that Tim and Alex have grown our LinkedIn page. We're over 13,000 followers. It was like 100 when I was running. Wow. That's, that's incredible. So shout out to Alex and Tim for, for bolstering that. But go join our LinkedIn group. It's you just search for OGG and it pops right up. And then while you're out there, give Jake and I your email address. Go to oilandgasthisweek.com. We promise never to spam you. We will think, I think we will use that list to notify when we do the special event for our 200th episode. I think we'll hit that email list first and then later hit social. So if you want to be one of the first to learn about whatever Jake and I are doing, because we don't know yet what we're doing for our 200th episode, uh, go to All and Gas This Week. Give me your email address and we'll make sure you're notified first. All right, Jake, ready to get out of here? Let's do it. All right, folks, remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. And here are the events on deck. Hey, guys, this is Alex, and here are the events on deck for September 2019. We are bringing Oil & Gas Tech Podcast to the Internet of Things Conference in Houston, Texas on September 16th through 17th. Joining us will be CEO Marty Sprintson of Vantique. You can register online at iotandoilandgas.com. The Midstream Networking Golf Tournament will be held on September 6, 2019 in Cypress, Texas, and the dress, of course, is golf attire. The NOV Sporting Clays Tournament will be on September 20, 2019 in Katy, Texas. Dress is casual. The Blockchain and Oil and Gas Conference is in Houston, Texas on September 18th through 19th, and the dress is business casual. That's all for September. Hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.